The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning. It's good to gather together again uh, on a Sunday, online, in person. Last week, James Leckler likened the book of Acts to a TV series with multiple seasons and this narrative about Stephen being the final episode of season one. Today's text is part of a transition point or a seam in the story that Luke is telling us in the book of Acts. As the story progresses, resistance against Jesus and his church is increasing. Chapters 4 through 7, there is Peter and John. They're arrested and left with a warning. Chapter, uh, chapter 4, chapter 5, the apostles are arrested and they're beaten. Here, Stephen is arrested and he'll be stoned and murdered. What's the transition here? One commentator says the Stephen narrative is a turning point from Christianity possessing popularity, chapter 2, verse 47, having favor with all the people, from popularity to persecution and scattering, chapter 8, verse 4. And the scattering sends Christians from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria. Just like Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 8, you'll be my witnesses, you'll receive power by the Holy Spirit, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. All Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Though this is painful, though this is persecution, Jesus is doing his work. This is purposeful. And his witnesses are being spread beyond Jerusalem out among the further reaches. So staying with James Leckler's analogy, season two will change its setting from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. But before that happens, we'll look more closely at the season finale for season one. Fourth of July is coming up, and every Fourth of July fireworks that I've been to ends with a grand finale. A succession of of fireworks, and the sky is filled with this awe-inspiring explosive color. And here in this finale, there's this explosion of text being filled with this long narrative of God's dealing with the people of Jerusalem. The season one finale begins with a flashback. It's an origin story of sorts. And before we dig in more of what this is and what Stephen is doing and Luke is doing by giving this to us, let's pray. Father, we know that we do not live by bread alone, but we live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. This is your word. This is what we need for life and breath and godliness. So, Father, be gracious to us this morning. Help us hear what you have for us. Soften our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's set the scene a bit more. Stephen is responding to 
accusations from the Sanhedrin. And those accusations are in chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. And they say this, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say, This Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. The accusations center around two things. The land and the law. The land, specifically the temple, this holy place, and the law of Moses. And the text for today begins with the high priest asking Stephen, are these things so? Is this true? And Stephen, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, does not give a yes-no answer to a yes-no question. He instead does two things. One, tells the story of God's involvement with Israel. And number two, from this, levels an accusation back against these Jewish leaders. So here's where we're going this morning. Part one, we're going to highlight some of the highlights of this story of God's dealings with Israel. So part one is unpack Israel's story. Part two, look at the accusation on the heels of this story. And part three, look at our place in the story. So one, Israel's story. Two, the accusation. Three, our place in the story. One, Israel's story. Stephen's historical summary here focuses six verses on Abraham, eight verses on Joseph, 27 verses on Moses, and seven verses on the temple. Why does Moses get so much text here as Stephen unpacks the story? One of the explicit charges against Stephen was that he was tampering with the law that Moses delivered. So Moses is explicitly mentioned here, so it makes sense that Moses would get more more play and more time. But Like most good storylines, I believe there's a deeper reason that Moses is predominant in this text, which has become more apparent as sermons, as uh, Stephen's speech unfolds. So start at the beginning. Read with me verse 2 through 4. Abraham enters the scene. Starting in verse 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land or from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after this, after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Here, Abraham obeyed God, but only in part. He went out from the land of the Chaldeans, but he stopped in Haran. He didn't go all the way to the land that God was promising. He, he stopped partway. So verse 4 says, God removed him from there in the land in which you are now, into the land in which you are now living. So verse 3, God said, go out. Verse 4, Abraham went out. But later in verse 4, God had to remove him from where he went to take him to where he was supposed to be. So as we follow this narrative of of Israel, we're going to see a theme of God's faithfulness to his promises and Israel's resistance to him. Next main character, Joseph. Look at verse 9 and 10. 
And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. The patriarchs are the fathers of Israel, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God made Joseph the leader over his brothers. But in their jealousy, they rejected him and sold him into slavery. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good. God was with Joseph and rescued him. Notice the double blessing there of presence and rescue. So God was with Joseph and rescued him out of his slavery and made him the ruler over Egypt. These brothers would travel to Egypt to find food, to find relief in famine. So these brothers would eventually bow down to Joseph and Joseph would be the deliverer, the rescuer, the one who would provide the means for God's people to survive. What we've seen in Joseph, we will now see in Moses. Israel's resistance takes the form of resisting leaders God was sending to them. Resisting Joseph and now resisting Moses. Moses enters the story. Israel is still in slavery in Egypt. They're being treated with cruelty. And it comes into Moses' heart to deliver his people. And he saw an oppressed Israelite and sought to defend him. Now look at verse 25 and 27. What comes after this? He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? So Israel rejects a leader again, and Moses flees. Now, 40 years later, Israel is still in slavery. And verse 34 says, God sees the affliction of his people. He hears their groaning, and he will come down to rescue them. And how does he do it? He does this by sending Moses back to Egypt. The man that Israel rejected as ruler and judge, verse 27, God, God sends as both ruler and redeemer. And he rescues Israel out of their slavery, verse 35. Then Stephen says, Moses received living oracles. So Stephen wasn't negative on the law. He spoke positively about the law. These were living oracles that God gave to Moses. But Israel rejected the law, and they rejected God's leader again. And this rejection is different from the ones that we have seen in the story so far. And to see that difference... Look down at verse 39, 39 to 42. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. There's that word again, thrust him aside. A double rejection. Thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go out before us. And for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away 
and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. An unbelief took root in Israel that was persistent and was pervasive. They rejoiced in the evil works of their hands. They reveled in their rebellious idolatry and it led God to turning away. God gave them over to their idolatry. God is slow to anger. God was patient with Abraham. He was patient with the patriarchs. He's patient with Moses. He's patient with us. He's patient that people will be led to repentance. But a persistence in unbelief, a pervasive posture of reveling in rather than repenting of sin will in time reap the fruit of condemnation. And that's what's happening here. A generation, a generation perished in the wilderness. But even in that, not the entire nation perished. In God's judgment, there is still a lining of mercy. There's a remnant. There's a remnant that's preserved, and that remnant, in verse 45, receives blessing from God when he dispossesses the nations that, that he drove out before them so they would have the land he promised them. Now the final character in the story, the final highlight, is the temple. Verse 44 to 50, God gave Israel possession of the promised land through Joshua. Now through Solomon, Israel built a house for God to dwell in. But God can't be contained by a built environment. And Stephen says in verse 48, the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. So how is this flashback history setting up the next scene in our text? The next scene in the final episode of season one. Stephen takes the story of Israel and holds it up to the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish rulers, as a mirror in the hopes they would see themselves in this. In the hopes they would see the error of their ways. And the tension begins to build as Stephen takes a charge from the Sanhedrin and levels a charge of his own. The accused turns the table and becomes the accuser against his accusers. Look at verse 51 to 53. Hear it again. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What Stephen is saying is the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. The rejection and rebellion we've seen throughout the course of Israel's history is true of these Jewish leaders too. And when Stephen used the expression stiff-necked, the Sanhedrin had a flashback of their own. They knew exactly what he was saying. And here's how one commentator puts it. In Stephen's speech, the Jewish religious leadership received the same declaration of judgment that fell upon the wilderness generation after worshiping the golden calf. Stiff-necked. Those idol worshipers? Stiff-necked. You? Stiff-necked. These were the people who failed to enter into God's rest and possess his promises because of their unbelief. And so they perished in the wilderness. 
Stephen pronounces the same judgment on the Sanhedrin. Here's what Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin. The golden calf idolaters who failed to enter God's rest and possess his promises, the ones that perished in the wilderness because of their unbelief, that's you. You are idolaters. You have corrupted yourselves. You will perish if you don't repent and receive the righteous one. And you murdered him. This explains their intense anger in response to this and their murder of Stephen. What could the Sanhedrin not see? What was the Sanhedrin stiff-necked about? When the Jewish leaders accused Stephen of corrupting the prestige of the temple in the Promised Land and compromising the law of Moses, they were grasping tightly onto shadows and they weren't opening their hands to receive the substance. The primary thing that God gave Israel was not land. The primary thing God gave Israel was not the law. The primary thing God gave Israel was promise. It was promise. The Sanhedrin knew the facts of the Old Testament, but they didn't know the meaning of the Old Testament. At the heart of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, is the gospel promised. And these leaders couldn't see it. The Old Testament, like the rest of the Bible, like all of life, has Jesus as its central subject. Has, has Jesus as its unifying principle. Has Jesus as its unifying person. We know this from Luke twenty four forty seven, where Jesus explained from Moses the prophets, and all the Old Testament scriptures are things concerning himself. The Old Testament is about Jesus. We know this from John 5, 39 through 40, where Jesus is admonishing uh, Jewish leaders, and he says, you search the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. You, you search the scriptures thinking that by them you have eternal life. But the scriptures bear witness about me. But you refuse to come to me to have eternal life life. And because the Sanhedrin, because these Jewish leaders can't see this, they get the land all wrong. What the Sanhedrin call this holy place is just a place. There's holy land outside the holy land, and Stephen says so in his speech. He says, the glory of God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. He was with Joseph in Egypt. At the burning bush, Moses was told to take his sandals off his feet because he was standing on holy ground because God was there. Holy ground is wherever God is. God cannot be localized or tribalized or bound by a geography. We don't make a place for God. God makes a place for us. Revelation 21, 2 and 3. It says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. God making his dwelling with us. God coming to us in that. Even more, Colossians 1.19. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9. In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity 
dwells. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the place God resides. And Jesus said he would be with us always in the age. We don't go to a place to find the presence of God. We go to a person. And this person is always with us. The holy place is a shadow. Jesus is the substance. And they missed that. What about the law of Moses? The law is good. It helps us to know how to live, but it cannot give us life. Moses, the giver of the law, points to Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. Moses, the lawgiver, points to Jesus, the life giver. Verse 37 in our text. Moses says, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses knew there was one greater coming after him. Verse 35, Moses was ruler and redeemer. Back a few chapters in Acts chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus is leader and savior. He is the leader. He is the redeemer greater than Moses that this Sanhedrin should have been looking for. Moses is the shadow. Jesus is the substance. The Sanhedrin murdered the one they should have magnified. Part three, our place in the story. Stephen held up Israel's history as a mirror to the Sanhedrin so they could see themselves. And Luke is holding this up for us so we can see ourselves in this. How do you respond to Jesus? Are you stiff-necked? Are you uncircumcised in heart? Do you resist the Holy Spirit? There are two ways, at least, that we reject Jesus, the righteous one. Through unrighteousness, on the one hand. Through self-righteousness, on the other. Unrighteousness, immorality, licentiousness, irreligion, relativism, disobedience to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And goes through a list of immoral behavior. Or Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Unrighteousness, living as the world lives, being a law unto yourself. But there's self-righteousness. Morality, legalism, religion, a hollow, self-centered obedience. Turn to Luke chapter 18. I'll look at this one together. Luke chapter 18. Jesus unpacks self-righteousness well here for us. What is it? Luke 18 Starting in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Note, that is the little warning sign that self-righteousness is welling up in your heart when you treat people with contempt. You look at someone and you say, I can't believe that they said that. 
We look at someone and say, I can't believe that she didn't do that. Unless she did do that. When contempt is rising up in your heart toward others, and you're seeing yourself as, as over others, self-righteousness is rising up. He says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What's he do? Makes a list of all the bad things others do that he doesn't. Going on, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I do. What's he do? Looks at all the good things that he does other people don't. But the tax collector does something different. Standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Unrighteousness. Self-righteousness. Which one of these are you watching out for more? Which one are you on guard for more in your life? Which one can sneak up behind you and grab you? Let's go a bit deeper to this. Unrighteousness and self-righteousness are two fruits, I believe, from a common root. Martin Luther said that the default condition of the human heart is works righteousness. I think he's right. Everyone embraces standards that they try to live up to in order to be okay, in order to feel satisfied about themselves. Standards of diet or exercise, standards of how you handle your money, the kind of job you have, the clothes you wear, being a hard worker, being a funny person, reading the Bible every day, praying five times a day, even for the unrighteous. They live by a law that says, I live by no laws. They have at least one law. There are no laws. How, how good are they at living up to that one law of living lawlessly? <laughs> the human personality has a bent toward establishing a righteousness of its own. Establishing a righteousness of our own. Either through following our own rules, irreligion, unrighteousness, or rules set by some moral authority, religion, self-righteousness. At the heart of it, there are both forms of works righteousness. And I think we see that in our text for this morning. Remember how Stephen describes Israel's idolatry in verse 41? He says, And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. An irreligious works righteousness. Rejoicing in their evil works. Then listen to verse 47 to 48. On the other side, it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Religious works righteousness, perhaps. Proud of the beautiful ornate build, religious building that has been constructed by their hands, proud of spiritual accomplishment, 
We are condemned through unrighteousness, through self-righteousness, which are all rooted in a works righteousness. And that was the problem. That was the problem. But we are saved through Christ's righteousness. That's the solution. That's the good news. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. Our sin to him, his righteousness to us. That's how it works. In a teaching with Jerry Bridges one time, he said that we are no more saved than our good days. We're no less saved than our bad days. Because Christ's righteousness is ours. The same yesterday, today, and forever. That's our hope. That's what the Sanhedrin missed. That's what Luke wants us to not miss today. By receiving the righteous one, you are counted righteous and you can rest. Without that, you're always proving yourself. You always wonder if you're good enough. You always wonder if you measure up to standards that you've set for yourself or others have set for you. You'll never be at rest. But in Christianity, you don't work your way into rest. You rest your way into work. Good works pre prepared beforehand for you to walk in. The law is not canceled out by Jesus. It's still a guide for actions. But obeying the law is not what establishes your righteousness. Simple faith through grace is what does that. Faith means you're not looking to yourself, but you're looking to another to be what you need, and that's Jesus. The two closing questions for you this morning is works righteousness creeping into your Christianity this morning? Whether through unrighteousness, whether through self-righteousness, is that creeping into your Christianity? And two, are you trusting Jesus, the righteous one, to be your righteousness this morning? Let's pray. Father, we do not have a righteousness of our own. The Sanhedrin thought they did. The Jewish rulers thought they did. We can think that we do. We can look at the, at the lives of others and feel like we're better than them. Or we can look at our own life and we can see how, how bad we are. And both of those <clears throat> are meant to lead us to you. We can never be good enough that we would satisfy your justice, but Jesus was. And we can never be bad enough that you won't forgive us when we repent and you will grant us his righteousness. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. 
but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.